Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. On today's episode, we are going to be discussing sex, relationships, and what that looks like in our culture. And while that topic may get people squeamish when it comes to discussing it, maybe even with their kids, the fact is, is we want to make sure those conversations are being had with blood-bought believers who have a sexual biblical ethic. And so I'm so excited for this interview as we sit down with the author of Chasing Love, Dr. Sean McDowell. Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show. Chad, thanks for having me on, buddy. Well, you know what? I am excited. And I had told you uh, prior to the show that I love your interviews. You, you do a ton of interviews. A lot of the people that we have interviewed, you have interviewed as well. And I got to kind of do research. And I, I think you do an excellent job. But another thing as well, I, I am a father of four, and my two boys are are wrestling and playing football. And I know you, interestingly enough, have a basketball background. You played at Biola, and your son is a basketball player too. And I just wanted to tell you, as somebody that is involved in ministry, and then watching you and reading what you've said about you know watching your son play, I think you're a great encouragement just in that regard alone of a father encouraging his son in sports and being there and making ministry really a part of their life as well. Well, that's really kind. A lot of what I do is for my wife and for my kids. And I figure if I can help them out in books and interviews and things I do, other people are looking for the help too. So thanks for saying that. I love hoops, love my kids. And one of the hidden blessings during COVID was playing a whole lot of basketball with my 17-year-old who had no one else to play with. I thought I was done playing decades ago but we got to enjoy that time together <laughs> yeah amen and uh you know i built a wrestling mat in my living room my poor wife had to nice. deal with that so i <laughs> i definitely i definitely understand that but i think this actually gives us a good segue into the book chasing love that you've written because one of the things you talked about and a lot of times in the christian realm we do get a little squeamish when we talk about these things and a lot of times people like well i don't know if i want to talk about those things with my kids but where are they going to get this advice? And did you not, with this book specifically, you took it to your daughter, is that right, to, to read and check out? I did for a couple of reasons. Number one, she was 12 at the time when I was writing this. She just turned 14. Is I wanted to know if there's anything in the book. She's like, Dad, this doesn't make sense. Dad, this is dated. That This is not relevant. So that was one reason just to get a teen's feedback. But the second reason, which was even bigger, is it gave me an excuse to talk to my daughter about the issues in the book, sex, dating, relationships. So I told my daughter, I said, hey, if you'll read this book and go out to coffee with me and we just talk about it, not a lecture, I'll buy you a pair of shoes. And my daughter's such an entrepreneur. She goes, dad, there's a, you know, Atlas down the street. I could get two for the price of one. I was like, you could get three for the price of one if you're willing to read it. And she did, gave me feedback and we talked about it. So Yes, I had her and actually a whole group of students read the book and give me feedback before it was published. 
I think that is excellent. And one of the things, and one of the reasons I brought up the, the whole basketball thing is I was, I was talking with some parents and I I've been a, a youth pastor now for a number of years. And I was talking with some parents about specifically when we talk about ministry, when we talk about the Bible is this idea of living out your faith where it's just a part of your daily walk. As it says in uh, Deuteronomy six, as you walk by the way that these things should be something that we are telling to our children. And do you find that, and especially you use this as a great time, daughter's 12 years old. I think that is a great age to have these discussions, you know, using that as kind of a springboard, you know, are, is this something that you think parents could use this book and say, Hey, this is a great way to say, let's have this conversation. Now. I think we're ready for this. Yeah. I think there's two ways we should have this conversation with our kids. Number one way is as you described, very formal, intentional conversation. So the first book I wrote, I think 2005 or 2006, was called Ethics with an X. And I thought, well, I'll have 10 chapters because every book has 10 chapters. Then I became a parent. I thought, wait a minute, how could I actually write a book that would be helpful to me and potentially to other parents? So I was like, let's do 30 chapters shorter so I could give parents like the one month challenge, read a chapter with their kids, talk about it, and then you're having these most important conversations. So yes, this book is designed to be a tool for youth pastors, for Christian school teachers, for parents, for mentors to read through and talk with students about. I've done that with my own kids, both my son and my daughter. On the other hand, I also think certain opportunities arise kind of in the course of the day that are unplanned that give us opportunities to talk with our kids about sex. And we need to be ready to grab those opportunities when they come. So this sometimes happens when we're watching television. We used to watch the show The Flash with our kids and there would be some incidents about living together, about homosexuality. I just pause it real fast, have a conversation with my kids and then we would move on. Another example, driving in the car recently. My daughter is now 14, my son is eight. And she describes how they had a conversation at school about abortion. So my eight-year-old goes, dad, what's abortion? Well, I jumped on that opportunity to try to have an age-appropriate conversation with my son rather than push it aside about abortion. So I think the best sex ed is having formal, intentional talks, but also seizing practical opportunities that come up throughout everyday life. And even if we don't have a perfect answer, just showing comfort to our kids, not freaking out, and merely having a conversation with them about this. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I did love reading Chasing Love, because there was really a practical aspect, and you broke it up into three different parts in this book, and one of the things also I noticed is you spent a lot of time on, when we talk about this subject, people kind of go away from it, but you spent a lot of time dealing with the single nature as well when it comes to relationships, because there are a ton of young single people that are struggling, and is that somewhat of a point of emphasis in the book to say, hey, we also need to address singleness as well? Yeah, this is a huge decision on my part, very intentional, because one of the things purity culture often left out was a focus on singleness. It gave the message intentionally or not in different ways that God wants you to get married. And if you're sexually faithful now, God will bring that spouse to you and you'll have a lot of kids and endless sexual bliss. Well, number one, that's not biblical. Number two, it doesn't work. So part of including singleness in the middle section of the book was saying, wait a minute, we've had bad theology when it comes to purity. But also, if you look scripturally, both Jesus in Matthew 19 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 
talk about two different ways to honor and love the Lord in relationship. One is through singleness and the other is through marriage. We have done a good job talking about marriage within the church, but we haven't done a good job talking about singleness. And as a result, there's a lot of single people looking at the church thinking, gosh, if I join the church or stay in the church, I'm relegated to second or third or fourth class citizenship. They'll put me over there in a separate building for the singles group and people will make jokes about when am I finally going to get married? We do not do a good job theologically or practically embraces singleness. And the other reason I include a singleness is most kids reading this are going to be probably 12 at the lower end to maybe 19 or 20 years old. They're single while they're reading this and people are getting married. Those who do get married later than ever into their upper twenties now on average. So we've got to talk with students about how do you honor God for a decade plus as a single and for some people, the rest of their lives. We just have not had that conversation well in the church. No, I think that's why I did love the book while, while reading it, because you didn't just focus on that one particular thing where, well, you know, get ready for marriage, get ready for the, and, you know, I want to bring this up because you brought up purity culture kind of just kind of, you know, just a little bit there, but I'd love to dig into that a bit because there seems to be, you know, some blessings and curses, uh, and mostly the curses is what we focus on when it comes to the purity culture movement. But some people, I think, have even attached your dad, who we've also inter interviewed on the Good Fight Radio show, Josh McDowell, to kind of the purity culture movement, you know, the I Kiss Dating Goodbye and so forth. So maybe if you can give us somewhat of a historical background, because you do talk about that, and on purity culture and also maybe what your dad's views are and what your views are in terms of the book in light of purity culture. Yeah, my dad in the 1980s into the early 90s led the first global sexual purity campaign called Why Wait? It was really the first time that the church publicly and internationally addressed some of the issues of the sexual revolution. So he was addressing some of the issues coming from culture, but also a lot of Why Wait was, uh, was kind of focused on the church being so negative about God's beautiful design for sex. Now, that was in the 80s into the early 90s. What's called purity culture off is typically dubbed like mid-90s to like the 2010s. So my dad was a precursor to this and had some similarities with purity culture, but also some pretty significant differences in how he would approach things. So that's important to keep in mind. Yes, he gets lumped in there because he's had such a big influence, but really purity culture is typically tied to like the True Love Waits movement and the book by Joshua Harris, uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and a host of others in kind of the mid-90s and the 2010s. And I think you said it right. There's some good that came out of it, but also some areas of concern. So some of the good is that purity culture taught us that sex really matters. It is a big deal. And we might have made it the biggest deal, which is a mistake on the other side, but we know that what we do with our bodies matters, how we love our neighbors, how we honor God. We are bought with a price, honor God with our bodies. And purity culture said what we do with sex matters. It also empowered people in the sense of saying you can say no. You have control over what you do with your body, if you're sexually active or not. These are all positive things that purity culture in different ways uh, helped empower kids towards. 
some of the concerns would be at times the message was given. Well, the motivation is just so you don't get an STD or so you can have a wonderful marriage. Those, there's some truth behind those. If you're not sexually active, you're not going to get an STD. And choosing to not be sexually active tends to benefit somebody relationally when they get married. But ultimately, that shouldn't be our motivation. Scripture says, be holy because God is holy. Our motivation for sexual purity and any behavior should be out of God's holiness. It should be about loving God and loving our neighbors, regardless of the benefits to us. That was sometimes left out of purity culture. Yeah, and I think that is so important. And, I, and I've heard you mention it as well, almost like a prosperity gospel version of sexual relations with your wife as though if you're waiting, then you're going to have the best sex life ever. And that, is, that, is that a biblical perspective that they were trying to put forth there? Well, it's often been called the sexual prosperity gospel. And of course, the prosperity gospel is God wants to bless you financially and with a job and a certain marriage and a home. And the problem with that is when you read in scripture, it's like scripture makes it clear, pick up your cross and follow me. You should expect to suffer. And so what happens is when somebody believes a prosperity gospel and they suffer, they start to question God entirely. Well, the sexual prosperity gospel kind of took that idea and said, if you're just not sexually active now, God wants to reward you with endless sexual bliss. He wants to give you a lot of kids and an awesome marriage. Well, I interviewed Rachel Joy Welcher on my YouTube channel, and she said she was told that narrative. Got married to a Christian young man who, and it was blessed by her pastor, blessed by her parents. The problem is a few years into their marriage, he became an atheist, divorced her, and she was single in her 30s. So she had been given bad theology and then started to suffer the consequences because of it. That's what's called the sexual prosperity gospel. Now that said, what we do find is that God has designed sex for a reason. And there is a certain contentment that comes from living our lives and using our bodies as God intended them to be used. So there is a certain pleasure to a degree and just a contentment and satisfaction of having a marriage that is God honoring and living according to our design. But we just have to be careful when we start to say something like, oh, you think the world has good sex? Ha ha ha. Come to the church. We have the best sex. Ironically, when that happens, we see that sex is used to sell everything. And then we also realize sex is used to sell the gospel, which is just so contrary to the nature of what the gospel actually is. <laughs> I... You know, I think that is such a great point to make. And I think it's so important for people to understand that because it is, it is, you're, you're feeding somebody, like you said, this gospel message where all of a sudden now we're selling sex again. And we're like, wait a second, the culture seems to be doing just a fine job of that everywhere you look. And you mentioned in the book, you said, when it comes to this generation, you know, specifically that we're, you, that you're addressing in the book, it seems like they have a ton of voices, more voices speaking into their lives than anything we've ever had. And we're talking about whether it's YouTube, whether it's Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, it seems like there's a lot of voices 
talking and speaking into the lives of young people. And I want to ask you, what kind of effect do you think those voices and the multitude of voices have on these young people when it comes to sex and the culture that they're looking at? Well, one way it affects them is students start to ask, who can they trust? Because if you have endless voices coming through TikTok, Netflix, educational system, parents, pastor, students are starting to wonder, who can I listen to? And everything they're told, they can simply Google or look up at YouTube and see somebody smart with a different perspective. So sometimes it can lead to skepticism in terms of knowing anything. That's one of the big effects, which is why I've really come to believe at the heart of the question is, who are young people going to trust and why? When it's all said and done, young people are asking a question, am I going to trust this narrative I hear in the educational system that I see in TV? that I see in music, or am I going to trust God and what he says in scripture about his design and his purpose for relationships? At its core, this question of sexuality is really one of who we're going to trust. And we trust people that we think know something, which is why I let my doctor operate on my body and not my car mechanic. We trust people who know things, but we also trust people who we think have our best interest in mind. At the heart of it, young people are asking the question, can I trust God? And does God really have my best interest in mind when it comes to sexuality? Or as what we hear in the culture, is God trying to steal all our fun? And one of the biggest things I took away from my dad and his sexual purity campaign go back to the 80s is he would say, son, every negative commandment in the Bible has two positive things to protect us and to provide for us. I think he's right. The heart of the question is, can we trust God? And do we believe that God is good and his commandments are for our good? Yeah, and I, you know, one of the things I love is in, I believe it's chapter four, you speak directly to the character of God and how that relates to us, as you just mentioned, to trusting in him when it comes to our sexual ethics and where we should get them and derive them from. So, how does the character of God, how does that point us towards trusting him with that ethic as well? Well, it's interesting over and over again that we're told in the scriptures, for example, like in Psalms 19, David says he rejoices in the law of the Lord. In other words, David knew that God's law was good. Now, he had trouble following it, we all know, but somehow he knew God's law was good. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses to speaking to the people of Israel before the end of the promised land. He says, love Lord God, your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, and follow these commandments, which are given for your good. We see in Psalm 105, it says, God is good. One of the first things Satan does in the scripture is he doesn't say to Adam and Eve, you know, you are just dreaming. God doesn't exist. He doesn't question the existence of God. Doesn't question the power of God. Questions the goodness of God. Is God really keeping you from all the fun? Can you really trust God? Satan says that he offers better than what God does. Gets him to question this view about God. And of course, we know what follows. So at its core, what kids are being challenged with all the time today is really, can you trust a book that's written 2,000 years ago? Do you really think what Jesus said about sex 2,000 years ago matters today? And at the core of the question is, do they believe that God is good? That's why I think God gave the command in the Bible not to eat fruit. In some ways, it's such a counterintuitive claim not to eat fruit, put it in the center of the garden, 
and then tell him not to eat something that's meant to be eaten. What was God doing? Well, he didn't tell Adam not to murder Eve because that would have been easy and intuitive. God gives a command that was non-intuitive because at some point, if humans are going to trust an all-powerful God, be in relationship with an all-powerful God, we're going to have to trust that God knows something that we don't know. And that goes back to God's character. No, amen. I could not agree more. And, you know, it's interesting. I came out of uh, atheism, agnosticism. And when I came to Christ, I immediately started sharing the gospel with my friends I was partying with a couple weeks before. And I remember them specifically. And I've heard it a number of times, uh, especially when I was brand new uh, to the faith of, you know what, I just can't have anybody telling me and living my life by some book and some rules. I have freedom to do whatever I want. And now you're locked up with these rules. And when I read, you know, an entire section you did in, in the book where you talk about the difference between freedom for and freedom from, I think it's an, it's just excellent. I would love for you to break that down for the audience. Yeah, thanks for asking. This is actually one of my favorite parts of the book because the whole first third of the book, I'm walking through misconceptions and I think lies and false ideas. Even some of our kids in the best Christian homes, homeschools, private schools have believed about identity, about love, and about freedom. And if you ask most young people what they think freedom is, they'll say freedom is doing whatever you want without restraint. I screwed young people with that question and they came back to me and they said, that's what freedom is, doing what you want without restraint. And remember I said, paint a picture for me of the person who is living this out. And they said, a person alone on an island that could do anything he or she wanted to do is free. Well, I proceeded to explain to them in a conversation over an hour that they understood freedom from. Negative freedom is lacking restraint, but they don't understand freedom for, which is positive freedom, which is when something lives or is used according to its design. So my smartphone right here, it's not a waffle maker. It's not a, uh, a baton to be passed in a race. It's not a scuba tank. It's designed for a certain purpose. And when we know that purpose and use it accordingly, you could say it's set free. Well, in the Bible, the first thing we learn about God is in the beginning, God created. There's a purpose for language. There's a purpose for marriage. There's a purpose for nations. And there's a purpose for sex. And it's when we understand our purpose according to the creator, just like we understand the purpose of a smartphone and it's used accordingly, that we're set free. So one way that I've helped young people grasp this, I'll say, think about a piano. Person A says, I can sit on that piano and do whatever I want to that piano. I can wreck it. I can sit on it. I can pour water on it. I can bash the keys. I'm free to do whatever I want. That's person A. Person B understands the design of the piano and has cultivated the discipline to play the piano according to its nature, sits down and plays a beautiful song by, say, Bach. Which person is more free? You think, I th when spelled out this way, young people begin to realize freedom isn't doing whatever you want, because we can have the wrong wants. Freedom is actually cultivating the discipline and the ability to do what is right. We are free when we orient our lives around God's design. So why this matters, Chad, is our young people are approaching the Bible thinking freedom's doing whatever they want. They come up against God's rules and feel like, I'm not going to let anybody tell me how to use my body. Forget this. But if we approach this and say, wait a minute, God designed us because he's good. 
and intends for us to live a certain way, then like there's a design for piano, there's also a design for our lives. And we're only free, like Jesus said, when we know the truth and apply it as we see in John 8, 32. No, I think that that, as you said, you're one of your favorite sections and you're the writer. So <laughs> that's a pretty good insight. <laughs> and that was probably my favorite section in reading. And I think you do a great job of, of drawing that out as well. And I remember at being a, a young believer and reading first John chapter five and seeing that his commandments aren't burdensome, that Jesus is the one who said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And then you see those things and you see the ramifications and it's interesting. I, I believe a lot of the interplay in this book, and that's why I think it's such an excellent book for the topic, is you always go back to the nature of God in his goodness and the fact that he is our designer, that he is the one who designed us. So he does know what's best. And, you know, I know that uh, you do teach over there at Biola. I got uh, some of the guys who have come to the Lord through our ministry as well. And, and guys that I've discipled are now in the philosophy department over there. Uh, at Biola. Oh, and one of the guys that we talked uh, talked to was Dr. Clay Jones. And, you know, one of the things I love is when he talks about heaven and trusting in God specifically for the pleasures forevermore that we're going to have in heaven. And you talk about the purpose of sex in this book. And I think that is really important for people to hear about. What is the purpose, according to the Bible, of sex? I think there's three primary purposes. Number one, Genesis 1, 27, 28, make babies, multiply, fill the earth. That one's easy. Genesis 2, 24 says a man separates from his father and mother, clings or bonds with his wife, and the two shall become one. The second purpose of sex is uniting a couple together who become one financially, emotionally, spiritually, and biochemically, there's a unity that takes place. So procreation, unity. Third, I actually think God designed sex to foreshadow heaven. Now, what do I mean by this? I'm not talking about as we see sometimes in Islamic circles. If somebody dies in a jihad, they get a certain number, 70 dark-haired, dark-eyed virgins in heaven. That is not what I mean. I mean something very different. In the Old Testament would say that Adam knew his wife Eve or Abraham knew his wife Sarah. And knew in the Hebrew is yada. Now, it's referring to sexual intercourse, but it has this relational sense to it. You see, in our culture, we tend to think sex is just purely physical and it's just about pleasure. But in the, in the biblical mindset, it's a way of relationally knowing somebody. Not the only way, but an important way. Now, why is this important? Think about it. When people have sex together, they unclothe themselves and unite as one. There's a sense where God designed a husband and wife to be naked and not ashamed. What happens with sin is we hide and cover ourselves because of shame. So sex is meant to be one way where people are unclothed, reveal in a sense who they are, but still loved and able to love back without barriers or a mask between people. It's one way that God designed there to be relational intimacy. I don't believe there's sexual intimacy in that sense in heaven. That's not my point. But sex gives us a foreshadow and a foretaste where we will not be ashamed of who we are. 
God knows exactly who we are and loves us. We don't have to wear a mask between us and other people. We can experience real relational intimacy the way that God designed us to experience it. So sex makes babies unity and is one way of foreshadowing the deeper relational knowing that's in our hearts for relational longing to know and be known that we will experience fully in heaven someday. Hey, Chad, by the way, this is some of the best questions I've had in an interview in a while. You read my book. You set me up. Thank you for preparing. I think it made it valuable for me and the listeners or viewers as well. Um, As far as tracking me, I'm all over social media. I have a YouTube channel. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I blog. I'm actually even on TikTok as well, trying to reach a younger generation. But probably the central place to either find a link to the book. Someone could just go to Amazon or any bookseller. But if you go to seanmcdowell.org, I've got my blog, speaking schedule, a link to the YouTube channel, a link to the book, and a ton of other free resources there as well. So probably seanmcdowell.org, like I see coming up on the bottom, would be the easiest place to go to. We'll put links in the description so you guys can check that stuff out. But I want to thank you so much, uh, Sean, for what you've done for the body of Christ and for this book, and also for sitting down with us. You've been a a real blessing to us. you're, You're too kind, my friend. Thanks for having me on. God bless you guys. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.